Welcome to the Meeting Explorers podcast. This is Frederick Strang. In this episode, I'm grateful to take you with me on the first solo circumnavigation of the world by human power by Turkish-American engineer Erdan Uruk. Erdan is the founder and president of the non-profit organization Around and Over, based in Seattle. Also a member of the prestigious the Explorers Club and the American Alpine Club. And in July 2007, Erdan set out from Bodega Bay, north of San Francisco, aiming to become the first person to circumnavigate the planet solo, entirely under his own power. No motors, no sails, no means of propulsion other than his own strength. His plan was to travel across three oceans and six continents by boat, bike and foot, more than 74,000 kilometers or 40,000 miles in all, and climbing six of the seven summits apart from Vincent Massive in Antarctica. Five years and 14 Guinness World Records later, Erden completed the first solar circumnavigation by human power, a human test that is beyond comprehension, so unfathomable that the question, where do you find your energy from, needs to be reinvented. And I feel humbled to learn about how 844 days in solitude on three oceans affect the human psyche. Does being completely alone at the treacherous high seas evoke irreparable stress? Or does the journey act like a sanctuary for liberating the mind and finding inner peace? But Erden never felt afraid of the rough seas. The storms were the most exciting part and where Erden had the most fun. And when asking Erden, what does having a dream mean? He answers, a dream is a goal glimmering in the distance. It is an inner calling which, when accomplished, serve as the rite of passage into wisdom. Despite all the world records and the unprecedented firsts, Erden's circumnavigations very much passed everyone without notice. No big sponsors, no big media coverage. It was never about the money or the fame for Erden. It was a call. Because in September 2002, life had a dramatic turn for Erden. He was rock climbing with his Swedish friend Göran Kropp, who was known for his solo climbs of Everest without supplemental oxygen after bicycling to Nepal from Stockholm in 1996. That autumn day, Erden witnessed how his dear friend fell to his death. Kropp's death opened the realm in Erden of how precious little time humans really have and how everything can change in an instant. Erden felt like he'd been called, as if he had been handed the torch. As Erden states, life is a gift, live it. So without further delay, I bring you Erden Eric. Welcome Erden, thank you for joining me on the podcast. Thank you for the opportunity. There is a gazillion questions I have for you. Um, one of them is the why question, which I know is something you probably have spent some time contemplating about. Uh, you're always buying record-breaking new empowered solo circumnavigation of the world. Your charity project helping boarding school students in Turkey and your search for wisdom. Uh, but before we jump into this, could you please guide us and Tell us, the listeners, a little bit about yourself and your background. Sure. I was 
born in Cyprus, raised in Turkey. I am a former engineer with master's degrees in engineering, mechanics, and mechanical engineering. I have an MBA. I used to be in the corporate world for a long while until I turned into an adventurer pursuing um, (laughs) what seems to be impossible goals. And I have been fortunate that I am healthy and I am involved in sports to this age. I keep saying I have another 10 years in me. And then, of course, after that, there will be the records to break for the oldest man to do whatever. So that's me in a nutshell. (laughs) I love that. So age, is that just the definition of the elasticity of the skin? Age is uh, just a number, right? (laughs) People approach me in Sweden and they're flabbergasted and, and sometimes perplexed about why I endure the hardships, etc. But what you have done is some, for some people inconceivable. And when you meet people and they learn that you set 14 Guinness World Records and circumnavigated entire world in a rowboat, on bike and on foot solo, mm-hmm. what do people say about that? Well, there is certainly a, a sense of amazement coupled with amusement. Uh, why is that uh, even an option? Why did you do that? The way I look at it is by giving myself, setting myself the restriction that I was going to achieve this by human power, I actually made it more difficult, hence their amusement, uh, But by doing so, I had to grow up to that challenge. By setting the challenge, the bar so high, uh, even though I may not have been the perfect candidate to get it done, I had to grow into that person. I had to remold myself to gain new skills and to uh, have much more mental fortitude I had to grow to be able to achieve that goal. So that was my benefit out of this whole ordeal. If you look in the back mirror, do you even recognize yourself, your former self, before you set out on this adventurous trip? Of course, I would not have been able to say, I want to do this, or that is my goal. Or, uh, had I would not have been able to come up with that vision had it not been the person I was at the time. Not everybody would have taken that decision when standing next to a friend who had just fallen from a cliff. Uh, when I lost Yaron while rock climbing together on that broken chass um, on the side of the cliff, I had a Mm. choice. I could drop everything and hide in the corner and feel sorry for myself, or I could come out, punch a swing in, ready to take on the fight. I chose that experience to be a motivator for me rather than something that would beat me down. So we 
have choices. We just need to hopefully make the right choices along the way to become better versions of ourselves. Well, I can't imagine how it must have been witnessing your dear friend Joran falling into his death. I knew Joran a little bit, and um, we have all the reasons to come back discussing Joran and his whereabouts and the impact he had on you and your life. Um, but before that, I'd like to go back to 1997, and uh, there was an office wall in Washington, and that draw you your attention. And that was the catalyst for your around and over project. And it started out as a simple idea. And as you describe it, then it became a quite obsession. I'd like to know what was going around in you that day? Well, actually, it was more than one day. It was this habit of mine to stand up from my uh, desk where we had in that software development, I was a software developer. I would stand up and look at this map on the wall. It had the Pacific in the middle, America's on the right, the old world on the left. And I would stand while I had coding problems swirling in my head. I would look at where DC was, Washington DC. I would trace my finger across the world over the Bering Straits all the way to Turkey where I was from. I even gave it a name, I called it Journey Home. Could I do this by human power? It was my daydreaming, escaping from that office. Then, of course, as soon as I asked, what if, then I started asking how. How was I going to find the money? How was I going to find the time? Uh, how was I going to cross the Bering Strait? So those were the kinds of thoughts that were in my mind. I'm a problem solver as an engineer. I am programmed that way. And uh, that's where I was comfortable. So it felt like I could actually tackle this one problem at a time. And when I shared it with others, I got cynicism as a response. Uh, they were basically trying to size me up. Was I the right person to do this? Had this been done before? Could I do it? And quickly I learned that I don't need that kind of feedback. And hence I started reading about it, researching and trying to identify the risks and how to uh, mitigate those risks and how to prepare myself, how to gain the skills. So I went into this quiet obsession, as I named it. Not everybody needed to know. But I needed to seek people who had done similar things. So that's how I found Joran. In the uh, lead up to meeting him, I came across his book, The Ultimate High, and I read that book. And in that book, I found this man who had done things that I longed to do. He had done similar things, therefore... I could learn from him. And when he came to Washington, D.C., I'm sorry, by then I was in Seattle. When he came to Seattle uh, for a presentation uh, in the summer of 2000, 2001. Time flies. Yes, it was. Time flies. Yes, 2001 summer. 
I had to think about that one. And uh, he did a presentation. Before the presentation, I got to talk to him, and I told him about my uh, thoughts about a journey from uh, Washington, or then by then Seattle to Turkey. Um, he asked me, when are you starting? Do you have sponsors? So he didn't have cynical questions, but he had the difficult questions for which I had no answers. Mm. Were you surprised? Did, were you surprised by his response? Because as far as I interpret, many people had approached you with sinister thoughts if you were the right person to conduct this and achieve this. I was not surprised to get that, that kind of a response from him. The only surprise was he was the first to offer such feedback. Uh, and certainly I was uh, shaken. Uh, I, yeah, right. When am I going to start? I don't have sponsors. So basically those were the questions I didn't have answers for. Everybody else I could basically push back and say, damn right I'm going to do it. But then when are you going to start? Well. I don't have an answer for that. And he actually was able to hold up this mirror and say, come on, um, yeah, we have a saying in English, uh, either shit or get off the pot, right? So <laughs> it, it was really that kind of a moment where he uh, gave, Matt, gave me that swift kick in my rear. And in a way, I feel that the accident, in the accident, he actually served the same purpose for me. So Neuron twice whipped me into action. Uh, first by asking me, when are you going to start? Second by actually in his death, shaking me in my boots to get going. It was, life was short. You moved to Seattle in 99. And um, then you extend your dream into an around the world journey. Um, you say that, quote, there was serenity in that decision to commit as if to recognize that it was all meant to be, end quote. Most peoples have trouble with the first step and not to mention how quickly New Year's resolutions havocs. However, in your case, it seems like this was never the case and never the issue. What I like to understand what was shifting in you at the time? Where did this composure to commit evolve from? Well, let me go back to the question and rephrase that. It actually was never easy for me either. Think about it. In 1997, I started thinking about this, talking about this, and then I kept it to my, in my cards to my chest, and I didn't reveal it until 2002. Uh, when Yaron died. So five years had passed and I all, all I did was to produce excuses instead of coming up with solutions on how I could get going. So yes, I did have a five-year incubation period for this and it took the death of a friend to get me to move. And that is actually... Uh, a burden that I will carry the rest of my life. I should have taken off before paying that kind of a price. So in a way, I am as guilty as every other person um, that I did not act sooner. So uh, 
I can absolutely understand the inertia that our habits and our established uh, routines create in our lives. It is difficult to reinvent ourselves. It is never easy. It is a painful process. And I read it somewhere where it says, said, uh, life is a series of mini deaths. So you have to close the door on the past self and move on to become a new person. And every birth is painful. So uh, it was not any different for me. Uh, when we are shaken and a disruptive event happens in our lives, sometimes that leads to significant change. Sometimes women uh, find that after birth, they become a new person. They have new goals and new passion. Sometimes, uh, like me, after death of a friend or death of a parent or uh, going to war and returning home, we get a whole new perspective on life and act differently and vow to change our ways in the remaining time to be a better person, to be a person who can make a difference in the world. Um, in a way, uh, we are writing our epitaph. How will we? Re how is it that we're going to be remembered? In a way, uh, we need to write that in stone. You mentioned five years as a person who sits beside and uh, look from the outside inside it feels like this was a metamorphosis and uh, you had to go through this period of time to consolidate the idea from bridging the gap from an idea to realization and perhaps the, the enormity of this project needed this time to uh, become ripe uh, do you think that your background as an engineer facilitated the process and helped you realizing this project instead if you had been an ski bum who uh, uh just want to get on with it i'm not saying that all ski bums are like this but uh, <laughs> that was the first that came up to my mind and yeah. probably a very bad comparison but you get my point i do yes uh, in a way perhaps as an engineer i overanalyze things and that's why i say i should have started earlier um, I was looking at all factors that could go, all things that could go wrong. I was doing overanalyzing it, uh, looking at all the risks and how do I mitigate it. I wanted a perfect path forward. I wanted to be able to draw my path across the world uh, and uh, across land and sea and uh, figure out every detail before I committed. And that was in a way, uh, a good way to study, but it was not good for action. In the end, uh, when the message was pounded in me... That's where you need to be the ski bump. Well, yeah, <laughs> commit and just drop down that slope and get going. You will, <laughs> you, you will take your turns as they are necessary, right? So unless you just drop over the edge, nothing happens. In a way, it was the same for me. I didn't take that first step. And Yaron's death was the catalyst to make that happen. And at that point, uh, all excuses went out the window. Uh, 
I sat across the table with my then fiance Nancy, and I said, I have to do this now. She said, you must, you will. And we didn't look back after that. Uh, with her blessings, I cashed out my savings, some retirement savings, my 401k, and uh, we had a Lakeview condo uh, in Seattle, downtown Seattle. We sold that and we moved uh, a bit farther away. We had two cars, sold one, cut down on the expenses. In a way, we restructured our financial what uh, our uh, financial situation where we could live on one salary and kickstart this expedition. So that's how it started. We had to make choices. We had to uh, say, yes, we are now doing this. And once I committed, then I had to figure out all the nuances, all the difficulties, all the challenges as they came upon me. Before then, I would have waited to figure out what those could be and trying to guess. But, of course, you can never guess because all sorts of unforeseen challenges came up on me. Uh, instead of thinking about them, why didn't you just go face them? The dragons that wait over the edge of the earth, I had to go chase them down. And each time I came up to the horizon, they moved farther back. Those dragons were never there really to stop me. It was all in my mind. What would have become of you if you had postponed or abandoned your project? What what, what would you two have done? I think uh, had she not uh, participated in the expedition as she did, I would have had a very difficult time with myself and possibly with the relationship too. In the end, though, I think I may have just fallen back on the relationship and just gone back to my old self and back to the office and just be the daydreamer who never acts. When she was willing to say, yes, we will do this, then that gave me the confidence, that gave me the realization that I don't have to make a choice between Nancy and the expedition. This can both happen at the same time. We're in this together. And that's a very strong, that's a very empowering feeling. And um, I can't, I have a great debt to Nancy. I can't pay her back. Uh, so... Hopefully, we'll do expeditions together with her, too, at some point. And what kind of expeditions would she like to be part of? <laughs> She's picked up sailing. I have been sailing myself, so crossing oceans by yacht uh, could be a good start. Uh, we'll, we'll go from there. Well, I know that Euron's death transformed you in other ways. Uh, you felt the urge to tell your loved ones and friends and friends today why they mean so much to you and you were thinking of it as an assurance of goodwill as tomorrow may be too late i've experienced family tragedy losing my beloved sister and it's the single most painful event i've gone through and all the things that i wanted to say to her all the things i wanted to show her that is now too late i can only reconcile and pray that 
whatever her life energy is that she hears me in, or at least knew that that when she was alive. Why do you think it sometimes takes a tragedy for us to wake up and understanding our priorities in life and distinguishing the futile things from the important things? That's a profound question. How much time you got? <laughs> to put it briefly, I think, again, it comes back to the habits that we have, the mad rush that we live in, this uh, rat race that we get into, the careers that we pursue. Uh, we seem to be forward-looking all the time, standing on the shoulders of others who propped us forward, who gave us that support and push to get us to where we are. So sometimes it's very easy to overlook all of that. Though we appreciate it, we don't express it. We take it for granted. So it is extremely important, which I realized after Joran's death, um, after the death of my mother late, later, um, that once the person is dead, it's too late. They need to know while they're alive why you appreciate their contributions. We need to honor their contributions. We need to uphold their them as the person that they are. We need to recognize their contributions to our success. Without a son saying to his father that without the father he couldn't have been, or without the father saying to the son that he is proud of how his son has turned out, or the same thing between a daughter and a mother, or a son and a mother, it's uh, or siblings, friends. When we don't say it, it is not confirmed. It is good to confirm these emotions. It is a good bonding experience for us to voice these thoughts without saying them. We may actually not live them. Uh, when we confirm these thoughts and feelings, those people may be more willing to open up and share more and to do more and to take that same love and service to other people because now they know they made a difference. So we need to encourage that kind of uh, interaction for people to continue doing the good service that they have been doing. If we benefit from it, others may benefit from it too. So that encouragement is important. Keep them, to motivate them, to keep them engaged. Once you decided on this monumental ambitious undertaking was there ever a plan b well the plan b was always what if i can't finish it right so i was going to press on and i even modified the uh, plan when i uh, started on the way back from Yaron's funeral that November 2002, I drew the world map on a piece of paper, marked the highest summits on six different continents except Antarctica, and I said I'm going to go to each one of these by human power as Yaron had to Everest. And uh, that's how the Six Summits Project was born. So my first summit 
to go do climb was Mount McKinley in Alaska. I bicycled from Seattle. And that was a warming up. Yeah. <laughs> February 1st, 2003. So the accident happened September. Funeral was November. February 1st, 2003, I left from my home in Seattle, bicycled in winter conditions across British Columbia and Yukon all the way to Alaska and walked up to the summit of Everest. I mean, uh, McKinley. <laughs> and that was summit number one. I married Nancy and I bicycled back. She flew home. That was our honeymoon. Um, so I, I carried on. The, uh, these summits are going to uh, continue. Uh, the, along the circumnavigation, I was able to do Kosciuszko and then Kilimanjaro in Africa. Then I hurried home. Uh, and finished the circumnavigation in five years, 11 days, because we were running out of money. So what I'm trying to get at is I modified my plans, which included Everest and Elbrus and Aconcagua as well, but that would have kept me on the road probably another two, three years, and let alone uh, coming up with the funds to climb Everest, for example. So we just didn't have the resources. So plan B was to take a shortcut, run for the finish, on the circumnavigation and think about those summits at a later date. Uh, had I not been able to complete uh, the circumnavigation, well, I would have been, by the time I got to Madagascar, I was the first person to have rowed three oceans. So that was an accomplishment in itself. And that was a good spot to pull the plug on it, for example. Uh, there was always choice in my hands, uh, in our hands with Nancy. We always had the choice to stop, but we kept pushing, we kept pushing. Africa was a difficult time, difficult period for us. Nancy kept saying, come on home. I kept saying, well, if I do, I will have nothing <laughs> because media was waiting for me to finish the circumnavigation before they would write anything about it, uh, which was silliest excuse I heard for not publishing about me, uh, having been the first person to have rode three oceans and done so much so uh, already. And uh, so I kept pushing back. So we came to a grand bargain. I was going to bypass uh, Aconcagua as well. So I didn't go to South Africa, South America from Africa. I went straight to uh, the finish line at in California at Bodega Bay, where I started five years earlier and finished it. And that was the right move because Nancy's mother was in hospice care while I was bicycling across southwestern U.S. And immediately after I reached the finish line, she flew to her mother in Missouri and uh, Two days after I finished, I flew there. She was already in coma. She woke up. Is this you, Erdan? She said. That was the last thing she's, uh, she said ever. And I was there to be able to physically help move her. And then eventually she went to the hospital. And uh, within two days, she was gone. And, and, you know, life is so precious, so fragile. And the timing was so meaningful, if you will, because I was available to stand with Nancy. And that actually uh, was one of the uh, difficult memories that we lived together. Um, 
it is, again, uh, this whole journey is a testimony to how fragile life is actually, as much as we want to, we like to talk about how, um, you know, massive it was and how impressive it was and how physical it was and how great I was or whatever. Uh, in the end, it just comes down to, you know, life is fragile. Uh, do the best with it that you can. Are you a Buddhist? No, I'm not. I was raised as a Muslim and uh, grew farther and farther away from organized religion as I matured. And at this point, I can be termed an agnostic. Um, I question everything. I question motivations of people. I question any religion, Buddhism included. I am... <laughs> uh, I have kept every such uh, belief system at an arm's length. Yeah. Maybe it is uh, sad, but maybe it is peaceful. Sounds very strenuous, you know, questioning everything. It's, um, I think it is necessary for my own sanity. Um, uh, all these constructs that are pushed on me by society um, creates a bit of stress in me. So in a way for me to unplug and get out on the ocean and be one with nature is the best therapy that I have. Nature throws challenges at me that I can anticipate. She's honest. If there is a crack in my hull, she'll find it. She'll expose my weaknesses. She'll say, you didn't prepare well enough, and here's proof. And that honesty I can handle. But in society, in the workplace, in belief systems, in crowds, um, there's always this human element that can throw a curveball. And that surprise, the element of surprise, as uh, thrilling as it is to some, uh, it is not something that I enjoy. And throughout my uh, journey, people wonder about what was the most difficult thing I did? When was I scared? Was I scared on the oceans? Could a whale attack me? Did a shark ever bite me? These are silly questions. I never had a problem with nature. I will not have problems with nature because I can plan for all those eventualities and then accept the outcome because nature is so much stronger and bigger than me. Um, the downfall, uh, a potential downfall at any point during my journey was bureaucracy, uh, board crossings, visa uh, procedures. It was war. It was random crime. It was theft. It was gunpoint, robbery at gunpoint uh, on my bicycle on a remote mountain road. It was um, uh, the, the risks were, I'm a man. Rape is a threat. I mean, uh, if you want to think about these things, it is the evil out there that exists that could have come and found me, right? Uh, when we think about, oh, should it, could a woman do what I did? 
I get that question sometimes. You know, there is this threat. Well, uh, you know, the vulnerability also engenders empathy. So more people, more humans are willing to come out of the woodworks to try to help. They own the journey then. And the more vulnerable I am, the more exposed I am, the more help I need, the more uh, the journey provides. So I never failed to find the right people when I needed help. So there is that aspect of it as well. And um, we should never forget that. It, go it goes both ways. So there's this constant threat and risk. Anything can go sideways. And at the same time, well, there's humanity that I trust. And I will trust humanity until the very last day. <laughs> I want to go back and talk about the why question. I think this is significant because what I'd like you to hopefully be able to answer is picture the answer today in correlation to what you would have answered before you embarked on the journey. Basically, when I climb I 5000 meter peaks, I received four times a question from journalists. And the first one is inevitably why. And the second one is, how do you go to the toilet? And this is so necessary for everyone <laughs> to understand. Uh, uh, the third one, uh, not surprisingly, is do you see a lot of dead people? The fourth question I get is, is there a lot of garbage on the mountain? And there is tons of garbage. And I like to touch base on that a little bit further on. But, but the questions might sound childish, but I'm asking you out of curiosity. And I'm really, really interested and if you want to be divine in your answer, please go ahead. Uh, why circumnavigating the entire globe, Erdan? Yeah, we need to reframe that, uh, related perhaps to who I am, right? Another person looking at the world map in the office while software programming, um, who's a desk jockey, uh, would not have traced his finger across and say, why, why not, what if. So it, that question is absolutely connected to who I was. And looking at that, it's, it's, I don't have a straight answer for that even after all these years. Um, let me go back to a childhood memory. When I was in middle school, our teachers brought a black and white television to the classroom and they said, watch this. Uh, this is happening in Turkey. And we watched the uh, astronauts walk on the moon live. And I had, I was, it was a boarding school. I was away from my parents and uh, we watched that. And then uh, I had this inkling thought that I could be an astronaut. I kept that to myself, didn't, uh, our, our teachers did not have follow-up exercises, they didn't say, so we made you watch this uh, session of astronauts walking on the moon, what do you think, what are you going to do with that information? They had no follow-up exercises, so we were left with this spectacle, and uh, they didn't follow up. And... My parents were far away. I had no one to talk to about my thoughts. 
So eventually I realized, well, all astronauts are Americans and I was not at, the de at that time. So I can't be was the default conclusion I drew from that. And today I'm not an astronaut. You can draw a straight line from that day, that child who was 12 years old to today to explain why I'm not an astronaut. Um, a child has these fleeting thoughts. That child could be anyone, could become anyone. Any astronaut that we see up there was once a child. Any scientist that we see was once a child. Any child has that potential. It is up to the adults to bring that out in the child, to identify what uh, passions that they have inside. It's kind of like a, a sculptor looking at a block of marble and saying, I see it. And then he starts chipping at it. And then as he chips and polishes and rubs that thing, you have a marvelous sculpture come out of it. It's not any different. That's an ongoing process. It's a process of growth. And it takes a village to raise a child. And so when I had this inkling thought that I could possibly do this, that I could travel to Turkey. And if when I got to Turkey, then I didn't need to stop there and I could continue west and return to where I started. That was the initial version of that journey around the Northern Hemisphere. And then after Euron's death, adding the continents, it turned into a true circumnavigation, including going through antipodal points and just basically making it even more challenging. I couldn't deny that thought. That child who said, I can't be, I was not going to let that happen to me twice as an adult. I was going to be. And if I didn't have the skills and the experience and the knowledge, I was going to become that person who could get it done. So I had to grow to become that person. Well, seeing the people walk on the moon was not the only thing that you marveled about. You were a true Jill Verne fan. And uh, if you could go back, if you could rewind the clock and you would go back to that moment in time where you sat in the school and you watched the people walk on the moon, what would you say to yourself? I would uh, seek knowledge. I would seek those who knew. I would seek uh, those with the experience. And this is exactly what I did uh, later on in, uh, when I became an adult. So when I started thinking of uh, doing the circumnavigation and when I got cynical uh, rea reactions from others, I was looking at books. I was looking for people who had done similar things and I was calling them. I was emailing them. I was seeking information and knowledge and um, their input. And most of them responded well and gave me some information. And that allowed me to... Uh, redefine what it was that I was going to do. And I, based on their input, I was able to draw what I eventually executed. Um, so the design process required input from all these people. So seeking knowledge was the way to go. And affirmation is a good thing, but it is not essential. Knowledge is more 
essential and affirmation. In July 2007, you set out from Bodega Bay with the aim to cross the entire Pacific Ocean unsupported solo, a journey that would take you 312 days. How did you feel? It was a daunting thought that I would actually be launching on, across the biggest ocean on the earth. I had already rode from Canary Islands to Guadeloupe in the spring of 2006. So that 96-day experience gave me the skills to take on the ocean, for sure. Um, after, all, after all, 101st day on the ocean is not any different than 100th day. And life goes on. It becomes a routine and existence in its own right. We can get used to anything. So the length of it did not scare me. It was just that unknown, the big immensity of it. And I had to chip away at it one day at a time. So yes, when I started, I was nervous, but that settled into a routine and it fell into the background. And I started adding one day on top of all the days prior, kept going. Something that I pick up when I read about you is that your life took many turns, uh, but there was no hesitation about the next step to take. Have you ever felt that you were somehow guided in the toughest of times and most difficult times? Uh, we all wish that we have this guardian angel that helps us make those right decisions all along. Um, but we all know with our Western minds that those guardian angels are a fi fiction of our own minds. So in a way, the courage that I have goes all the way back to my upbringing, to my parents, and to the lifetime of experience that I have had to handle challenges and to manage risks and outdoor activities. So when I am faced with decisions, I think having little hesitation and committing has become the way to carry on forward. Without action, I've learned that I linger, I founder, I get lost by having a clear decision, a direction, then that decision becomes my compass and it helps me, that commitment helps me gather up my resources, apply my resources toward that goal, get on that path and start moving. Without motion, I become lethargic and inactive and Physical activity, sports, it's not any different. I need to have a big goal ahead of me. I am going to run a marathon in six months, therefore, and then everything you have to do in the following six months is laid out in front of us. So it becomes this recipe on how to live my life. I do need big goals. I do have to take out hesitation. I do have to commit when I do things go both feet in without hesitation. Um, 
it's one way to get in trouble too, but hey, I've been okay so far. <laughs> <laughs> there, there is a quote that avoid, I love. You know, we can avoid all trouble on the oceans by staying in the harbor, safe harbors, right? Never venture out. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, as the saying goes, those uh, sailboats are made to fly the waves. They're not built to stay in safe harbors. So true. we'll have to get out at some point. Yeah, true. I want to go back to this discussion about the mind. And uh, there's a quote from you. The voices in my mind subsided at such times. It felt as though the issue had been well debated and firmly settled long prior, leaving me with that unavoidable step, end quote. Mm -hmm. I can't say that the majority of people experience what you are describing. It almost sounds like you were in a state of bliss, in absolute clarity. What I'd like to know is, what do you think the world would look like if the people experienced your state of mind and believed in themselves? Oh, we could do so much more, no? I mean, uh, there is the uh, there is the scientific knowledge that as human beings, we use only a fraction of the capacity of our brain. Uh, if we could use every single cell and wire them all to work together, and how superhuman could we become? It's not a it's not a different uh, discussion is it um, if we could all have that clarity of mind to move forward with conviction and to take action when it's absolutely necessary to anticipate the problems and to solve them ahead of time so that we all survive and we all take better care of this earth we all take care of each other give each other a shoulder um, to become the better versions of ourselves so that our children have more hope for tomorrow to all where all species will survive and they will also the children our grandchildren will also get to experience the beauty of this earth with all the creatures intact on it nothing going extinct i mean those are nice thoughts to have and we need warriors mm -hmm. We need people with conviction who will be willing to step up and be in the front lines and take action and commit their lives to a cause and say, no more. This is where the buck stops. You will have to answer to me now. And when we have these leaders, when we have these individuals acting up as leaders and then they start collaborating and we have a whole new movement that's how revolutions happen. Um, we, I think, need to change our ways significantly to make survival possible on this planet. You asked about plan B, about my journey. I'd like to just bounce off that idea and say we have one planet. We keep talking about settling the moon and the Mars, but there is no planet B. All those ideas are so esoteric, it's not going to get more than a dozen astronauts to the moon or a few to Mars, and that'll be the end of it, realistically speaking, in our lifetimes. Uh, we need to operate under the assumption that there is no planet B. 
and we need to save this earth. We need to be stewards of this earth. Until now, we have been parasites on it. We have been abusing it. We have been exploiting it. We have been destroying its uh, beauty uh, uh, in the name of resource extraction, whether it's logging or mining or fishing. We have been pests on this earth, making it suffer. It's like a disease. Humanity has become a pest on the surface of the earth. Um, we need to come out of that mindset and start acting like stewards of this earth, where our existence and our existence, our survival, are irrevocably linked to each other. If earth survives, so will we. And once we start acting in that direction and have the conviction to act on that thought, uh, it will all be better. That clarity of mind, that clarity of purpose, I think, is just as necessary for an individual as much as it is for the society. So I hope we can all reach that state of mind. How much of these thoughts, this mindset and this clarity, this clairvoyance, is result over your expedition, the around and over expedition? Um, I've had glimpses of this as a, an athlete. I was a wrestler. I did judo. Uh, there are, when an athlete is in the zone, the world quiets down and... There is intense focus, and you can see things happen in slow motion, and you can process things. It's, it becomes, uh, everything becomes more fluid. And these are glimpses of that clarity that we're talking about, being in the zone, that Zen experience, out-of-body experience, if you will. Um, so maybe you can say that I was trained for this. But I am, as far as these uh, environmental issues or social issues go, I am more willing to be vocal about it now than I was before. Perhaps in my older age, I am starting getting to the point where I have to say this now or it's going to be too late. Um, so there is a bit of courage that comes with age, I think. I'm hoping that it's actually wisdom speaking, but a lot of times it's my hot-headed uh, self-expression that comes out. <laughs> so I need to watch that too. Uh, and that I need to contain that anger and frustration and actually come across as a wiser, older man, an elder, if you will, of the society. So it's work, working progress. Uh, every day I learn something new and I learn something more about myself and hopefully I will grow into an elder in society, in world society, not necessarily just in the US or in Turkey, to be able to voice these concerns and thoughts and become a thought leader. Um, until then, I have to keep struggling and striving and aiming higher and growing. On your journeys, you met many children, and some have asked you if you were ever afraid. Mm -hmm. uh, then the children starts telling you about their own fears and all the reasons for why 
they would not attempt what you were doing. What kind of lessons about handling fear do you give these children? Well, first, I had to realize, uh, as I kept seeing that kind of questioning happen over and over, I realized, even with adults, that people see what I do through their own mind's eye. So their life experiences determined what they saw in what I was doing. Uh, children were not any different. And uh, when they asked me about uh, whether I should, I was afraid of bears, I told them that bears were asleep, they were hibernating. It was when I was bicycling up to Alaska in wintertime, for example, in British Columbia, they asked me those questions. Uh, whereas I afraid of trucks, I said, well, the trucks change lanes. Wasn't I afraid of loneliness? I told them I had them. So I tried to convey to children that fears typically are due to the unknowns. What we don't know, we fear. So I advise them to seek knowledge. So if we are afraid of a certain thing, identify what it is that scares us and then go seek it, go seek knowledge about it and uh, find those who have answers. Get into books and read about it. The more we know about these things, then perhaps we will feel less afraid of them and we may start to understand them. If, if bears scare us, well, we may not be able to figure out how to wrestle a bear, but we could figure out how to behave around bears so we can coexist. And that's a level of knowledge that we didn't have before acting out of fear. So those are the kinds of advices that I would give them. Seeking knowledge really was the key. And also I told them to yeah. uh, team up, to help each other, to support each other, to uh, tackle these problems together. Because in the company of like-minded individuals, they will have more strength. So, yeah, forming teams and pursuing solutions together was also an advice. I've been told that at the National Geographic office in New York, at the reception desk, there is a slogan, and it says that adventure is nothing but bad planning. Paradoxically, there's a lot of people who want surprises in their life, which I kind of think is bullshit because most people like the surprises they want and not the unexpected things and the uncertainty. When I meet people, they might be joyful and embrace adventure. But do you think people have the faintest clue about the enormity and, and, and the implications of adventure or are they just in love with the thoughts and not in the action I itself? I think it's the latter. They, uh, the word adventure excites people and then they make these, there's this myth uh, about well, how adventure is bad planning. Uh, yeah, there may be some truth about it. It kind of depends on how you define adventure. Uh, my team, my friends, uh, have often heard that the la uh, me saying the last thing I want is an adventure. I want things planned out. I want a route designed. I want my tools and skills together. And I want my team in place so that when I start 
putting my sweat equity into this journey, things evolve according to plan. As best I can, I will try to execute our plan. And if things start going off the rails, off the tracks, then I need to fight to bring it back on track. So my battle is to stay on the designed course. Uh, it's, it's never point A to B. It is how to stay on the track between A and B that we had decided ahead of time. So yes, adventure happens. Yes, every day is an adventure and a struggle, and uh, you're definitely making all the efforts possible to stay true to original plans. But sometimes the oceans and the world and the uh, nature has other plans for you, and you are not foretold about those. <laughs> she doesn't <laughs> tell you what those plans are, and then the next thing you know, all your best laid plans go out the window. That's when prior preparation and risk management and um, resilience and endurance and that what you call stubbornness comes into play. How far am I going to push this? And uh, how far, uh, how long should I stay engaged? Those are, uh, those decisions become critical for safety. I'm also curious about how open we should be in articulating our dreams and our desires. I'm, I'm thinking about you as a child, you were fascinated and you marveled about becoming an astronaut. And sometimes when you lecture for children, you ask them, who wants to become an astronaut? And surprisingly, a few hands goes up. And with hesitation, some few others laugh at perhaps these future cadets. What I would like to know is, how do you teach people to deal with negative peer pressure? Uh, if I am the teacher in that classroom, I would expose that peer pressure, the negative peer pressure. If I am the individual on the receiving end of that negative peer pressure, uh, then I would avoid that peer pressure. So it is important how we handle such feedback from others. Um, it is very important to surround ourselves with good people who will uh, show us our strengths and also expose our weaknesses in a constructive manner so that we can fix those. It is not helpful to let these negative attitudes linger in our periphery where they weigh us down. Um, so freedom from such negative feedback is actually a good thing. So I, as a person receiving it, I would drop them off my Facebook friends list, for example. <laughs> uh, I don't need that kind of agitation. <laughs> Just eliminate those people. So now you're in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. You're rowing every day. Uh, what I'd like to know is, how does a normal day look like on your rowboat? Oh, typically I would wake up in the morning with daybreak and uh, do the morning business, start rowing a bit, uh, make, fix myself some coffee, start rowing. I was rowing west, 
across the oceans during my circumnavigation. So I would always have the sunrise uh, while I was rowing. Then I would have, uh, I would take a break and prepare my breakfast, carry on some more. I would turn all food or chocolate or uh, any treat into a reward. Uh, music or sleep, all of those had to be earned. I would say, well, you know, row another two hours, then you can bring out the iPod. Uh, so in that manner, I always motivated myself to make progress, to finish the day. I would set a waypoint 30 miles away in the morning and say, I will get there today. It was never all the way across the ocean because that's like watching a tree grow. But I could always get to the 30-mile waypoint at the end of a day and feel good about it. So it was about reframing what I was doing. Then uh, at the end of the day, as the day as sun was setting, I would always tie my oars and stand up and watch the horizon. I was looking every day for the green flash and uh, said, physical phenomenon that happens in open ocean when you have no waves or any clouds in between me and the sun. And as the sun dips below the horizon, the atmosphere acts like a refracting glass. And uh, you know how it goes, Roy Jibiv, red, orange, yellow, violet, blue. Where's it go? And up to violet. Um, blue indigo violet, Roy Jibiv, the spectrum of colors. So red end of that spectrum is longer wavelength. Uh, violet end of that spectrum is the shorter wave wavelength. The shorter wavelengths do not refract as much in the atmosphere, so it goes overhead. And for a brief instant, uh, as the sun dips below the horizon, we see none of the... Uh, blue indigo violet of the sunlight, but only see the um, uh, red, orange, yellow, and uh, those bend and get to us. So though that combination of those colors, longer wavelength colors, end up as a green, and it it just shows up as a green light uh, flash. It's uh, it's a it's something that I longed for, and I only have seen it three times in my life after spending so many days at sea. Uh, just about a thousand days of my life have been spent on a rowboat on the oceans and sailing and everything else, too. So <laughs> it's a rare occurrence. I always watched it, looked for it. It didn't happen. Then I would sit, prepare my dinner, get inside, journal and send emails and messages to the team and to friends and to Nancy. And then uh, after all that, I would be tired enough that I could sleep uh, to start another day. Typically, I slept at night because that was the only cooler time. I was uh, typically always in the tropics, so it was quite sweltering in the cabin during the day. Now that became the routine. So how many times did you see that green flash? Yeah, I, I only saw it like three, four times in my life. I, I saw it once on the Atlantic in 2006, and then just once uh, on all of my circumnavigation, 
And then once recently, just last year, while we were racing in the Puget Sound, on a, a sail, sailboat racing, yacht racing. Is it worth waiting for? Well, as rare as it is, and if you're obsessed about it like I am, yes. <laughs> Otherwise, it means nothing to other people. <laughs> so you need it's, it's uh, where we uh, throw our attention, isn't it? Um, it's true in all uh, endeavors in life. Some people are very obsessed about um, life of crickets or something, and they become scientists that focus on that one field. And they are then going to publish 16 scientific articles about it in journals, and they know everything about that topic. And, well, that's the kind of focus it takes to become the best in the, what you do. So perhaps having that kind of focus is a good thing. So um, others may not care anything about it. So uh, anyway, green flash excites me when I see it because I've waited so long for it. I've never seen it. I've been in, I've been sailing in the South and oceans, and um, I only heard about it. And it was this mystical thing, and I was uncertain whether or not it existed, perhaps only the Hollywood movies. Yeah, uh, maybe I should spend more time on the oceans. I'm a fan of stars and, and astronomy, and you probably heard this, but there's 100 billion or 400 billion stars in our galaxy alone. Our eyes can only see about 3,500 to 4,500 star on any given night under perfect conditions. I look up on the stars and I start talking to them like our Indians did in the past. And uh, did you do this? Did you talk to the nature? Did you talk to the stars? Did you talk and what did you hear? Oh, boy. Uh, well, uh, <laughs> I don't uh, have distinct memories stand out, but whenever I saw a bird come close by i did i would have baby talk to it uh, whenever i saw a bird land on my deck i would reach for it and then care for it and then return it to nature um, fish around me dolphins around me the excitement i never uh, held back i would certainly scream scream in delight and talk to them certainly uh, talking to the stars no, it's just uh, the silent observation of the immensity of it all. Uh, when I had little cloud cover and I could see the Milky Way stretch from one end of the horizon to the other, um, it is a sight to behold. It's awestruck. Yeah, it just I feel awestruck, and I uh, I'm at a loss for words, honestly when that happens. Uh, Here's some interesting facts for you. Some experts believe that the mind thinks between 50,000 and 80,000 thoughts per day, and that 95% are repetitive thoughts. You've heard this probably. But I'd like to know is that how many thoughts do you think you averaged on your journey across the Pacific Ocean per day compared to when you were working as an engineer in the US? I have a my wife says I have I have ADHD uh, attention deficit disorder <laughs> uh, I believe her I can be totally distracted very quickly I have to 
really focus and in a way in that sense uh, being on a rowboat is a good thing for me because it cuts away all distractions that life throws at me the modern city life throws at me and i can read more while on the ocean believe it or not um when i was on the ocean alone I had thoughts ranging from dealing with the past, you know, I should have said that, I should have punched them, whatever. You're sorting out your issues in the past. And then <laughs> yeah, you're constantly scheming about what's going to happen next. When I get there, I'm going to do this. I'm going to climb that mountain next. I'm going to row that ocean next. And it's always this planning the future. And you're never in the moment until a creature shows up. A bird visits or a dolphin comes by and chirps at you. Uh, then you're returned to the moment. When the ocean got more lively and the winds picked up and the waves became bigger, it became more engaging. So those fleeting thoughts wouldn't go away and I would be more absorbed with the challenge and the moment. It's kind of like riding a bicycle. When you're riding a bicycle, you can be thinking about all, all sorts of other things. You're not worried about balancing yourself. You're still upright and you're moving. Uh, in a way, ocean rowing is like that too. There's a bit of a monotonous background activity that happens and becomes very second nature and the mind wanders. So to reel it in, I would do multiplication tables. Uh, people ask me, Go, do you meditate? Well, no, I just started doing my, I gave my mind a task to do. I would start with one times one equals one, one times two equals two, one times three equals three. I never got past four times one, but <laughs> that was a good way to busy my mind to drop that subject. Because it, I just got tired of that same thought rattling around in my head. And sometimes they were not the good positive thoughts. It was this evil memories, bad memories. Just I wanted to erase them, but they wouldn't go away. They would keep coming back, resurfacing their ugly heads. And so they needed to be squashed. Somehow I had to gain control of my thoughts. And if I could do that, then I could uh, leave myself in a better mood and uh, more focused on what comes next, and stay on task. We are all aware of the escalating rise of single-use plastics, and how scientists predict that by the year 2050, there will be as much plastic in the ocean than there is fish. Did you encounter any trace of plastics and waste as you crossed all these oceans? Yes and no. Uh, the ocean is such a big place that the plastic that we throw in it, even though it gets there and stays there forever, uh, and also breaks down with mechanical action of the waves and turns brittle because of UV exposure and breaks into smaller bits, it stays there. It's hard to spot it. And that's why perhaps... It hasn't been such an immediate concern for uh, public to, uh, to, 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 to appreciate. The problem 
of the oceans being so vast and any trash disappearing in it is actually the downfall uh, of the oceans itself. Um, being so big, we think it's indestructible, but it is not. It is a finite resource. Um, the permanent presence of these plastics and some of the chemicals that go out there as well, uh, organic uh, pollutants that can be in the water that end up uh, attaching themselves to plastics. And then when small creatures down to size of curl eat, eating this, which then gets propagated up the food chain, um, all the way up to the tuna and the orcas and the whales, um, we are creating a big problem for ourselves because we end up consuming those larger fish ourselves. So we end up re-ingesting the pollutants that we put in the water. Um, if not for the love of the ocean, for our children's sake, we need to stop it. You're also an ambassador for Ocean Recovery Alliance. What kind of job does Ocean Recovery Alliance do and what is your part in the nonprofit organization? Ocean Recovery Alliance focuses on highlighting the plastics issue and pollution in uh, our oceans. They have uh, campaigns in how to reduce uh, consumption of single-use plastics in uh, large events, for example, you could have, they, they could be uh, consulting a large stadium on how they can reduce uh, the impact of single-use plastics in their day-to-day -day operations. Uh, large uh, corporations can do an inventory, uh, a snapshot of their plastic consumption one day, and then reevaluate six months later, a year later, and then uh, compare the numbers and see how they were able to reduce that consumption. Um, all, all these kinds of work is done by Ocean Recovery Alliance. And uh, I became a, an ambassador for them uh, by highlighting their contributions to solve this problem and also raising funds for them. And I think it gives me a good cause to support, a good cause to um, focus my energies as I do my journey. Uh, having a larger-than-life goal, just like the circumnavigation was, becomes a big motivator for me. And having a, a purpose uh, would add additional motivation for me to do well because as I um, succeed and as I register new records, as I deliver on my promises, I might get some exposure in the media. And that's an opportunity. That's a teachable moment for us to uh, deliver these messages, to raise awareness, to tell people, look, if you carry your own coffee mug that's insulated, uh, that's going to be um, helpful to the environment because each time you buy a coffee a cup of coffee you won't be generating additional plastic that goes into trash and 
we need to realize that, hey, uh, all these companies that sell beverages are actually plastic bottle traders rather than drink traders. So uh, we need to expose that and say, hey, I'm not going to buy bottled water anymore. I will use filtered water. I will use tap water with a filter uh, on my uh, big mug and uh, I will do just as fine. So these are the kinds of changes that one can implement in their own lives. So we need massive behavior modification, and that only is, can happen by raising awareness and creating a mass movement. And that requires a lot of speakers repeating the same message. And that's part of what I am supposed to do as an ambassador. I wish I could do more. If people want to find out more about this important work, where do they turn to? Is that Googling Ocean Recovery Alliance? Is that Ocean correct? Recovery Alliance, yes. OceanRecov.org, yes. After 312 days at sea, uh, your boat was picked up in Papua New Guinea. There you became a local legend, as the people from Kamlava called you the man that came from the sea in a yellow boat. But they thought that you needed to be rescued. What was happening? Well, when I rode uh, on the Bismarck Sea and eventually reached Papua New Guinea shores, I um, was aiming for this one harbor uh, that seemed to have a wharf. And as I came in, I saw native canoes come out to me. Three of them came. They were curious. And um, they asked me if I needed help. And at the same time, these dugout canoes are made out of logs, right? Um, they were using these cans, rusty cans in their hands, uh, emptying water that was getting into it. So they were keeping that thing afloat by bailing water out of it, asking at the same time whether I needed help. Of course, I was appreciative kind of amused, too, with the thought. So I asked them whether they had a wharf in the bay that I was aiming for. They said yes, and I could cut, go tie up there. So I took my boat inside that little bay, sheltered to a wharf where I could tie my boat, and the whole village uh, followed the beach all the way to the wharf with me as I <laughs> went into the Oh, bay and um, tied up. They became I became the entertainment for the surrounding villages as well. It was first the men. They were all uh, uh, eyebrows furled and totally attentive and serious and not talking and uh, observing every move I made. And uh, they had machetes in hand. That's it's a farmers, right? They have. Uh, sugar canes to harvest and uh, pineapples to cut down and they that's what they do that that's their universal tool if I didn't know any better I could have felt threatened they would watch me and then they would then go to work and then when they disappeared the wives and grandmothers would show up and then with the grandmothers the kids would come and then the kids would start jumping in the water from the wharf trying to impress me splashing water on me and uh so i just became part of the scenery i became part of the um, 
routine of daily life on that green, luscious part of the world. It's a beautiful area. Have you kept contact with I them? Had, I went back and saw them again after I did the logistics of my boat and returned uh, to continue the journey. I found the same people who had come out to uh, rescue me, in quotes. <laughs> and uh, with, with them, I walked the beaches of Papua New Guinea for five days to a point where I could bring a sea kayak later. And, uh, so these were the same people that I went and sought. I, hadn't, I haven't had the chance to go back and revisit. Uh, there are so many individuals that touched my journey and became part of it along the way <clears throat> that it is impossible to keep in touch with everyone. One of my uh, dreams is to just go back and retrace my steps, not necessarily by human power this time, maybe hire a, uh, an RV, a recreational vehicle, and then just drive those paths and just get there and tr track down all these people uh, that touched my journey and do a presentation to them and say, this is what we did. Here's how you, this is you younger, 10 years ago or 15, 20 years ago. <laughs> yeah, that would be fantastic. <laughs> this is us. Yeah. You know? Now, after such a humongous time spending in solitude and on your own on the Pacific Ocean, like a forced retreat, if I can call it that, was it ever hard to be around people again, or were you extremely talkative and wanted to make up for the time you spent in the Pacific Ocean on your own? When I first returned into uh, humanity and found myself in a crowded uh, bus looking out into busy traffic. I had the sense that I was this fish in a bowl looking out into the world and the world was at an arm's length at a distance and I was just an observer detached looking at it from above from a distance. That, that sensation of detachment stayed with me for at least two, three days. And then uh, one gets into it again but uh, yeah that, that there's that distinct sense of detachment initially once one is thrown back into the uh, crazy stimulation uh, multitasking world of city life it is much simpler out there survival is so much more direct so much more you know, uh, we we can do with so much less. We can do uh, with so much less stimulation, with so much less material needs. And then once we're thrown at the city, uh, it becomes overwhelming again until mind catches up to the pace. A lot of people, when asked whom you spend most time with, often get it wrong because few is pointing towards themselves. We spend most of our time on this planet with ourselves as a company. What can you teach others who deals with anxiety of being alone? It's not any different than 
taking that first step into my journey. Uh, it took me a long while until basically Theron's death. I didn't take that first step. So starting with baby steps and training ourselves to be alone with our th own thoughts is a good idea. And that's why you know, people talk about meditation. You can sit and stay still, hopefully, for one minute and then take it up to two minutes, take it up to 10 minutes, focus on your breathing, take it up to half an hour if you can manage. And then when you get to that point and start losing focus, regathering it, losing it in another direction, regathering it. And that exercise actually, just like any physical exercise, develops those muscles in our mind to gives us the tools to be able to master our thoughts. So in a way, that thought control, that constant struggle to rein it in, and even the most experienced uh, Buddhist monks, I'm sure, have uh, these fleeting thoughts about how their foot is now asleep and they need to change position and, <laughs> and they lose focus and they start thinking about, oh, I'm hungry now. No, I'm not yet. I'm going to wait another hour. I have to focus and then just uh, turn it right back in. And I have no doubt even Dalai Lama goes through that kind of struggle. And that is discipline right there, that, that thought control. So enjoying one's company does not happen automatically. It has to be earned. It, needs, require, it requires one to commit to spending some time by himself or herself. Even in the company of others, we can enjoy some solitude. We can be on a hike where we're single-filed, uh, three meters apart from each other, barely hearing the breathing of the other person, but still in company, but in our own thoughts. It's the same weight we're carrying. Nobody's going to carry our backpack for us. And we have to do it ourselves. We have to get our own body up the hill with our own two feet, one step in front of the other. And that right there is actually a good step forward towards solitude. So if you can manage that, uh, imagine if these people were 10 meters away from you each at each step. And then maybe you know, half a world away at each step. It's not any different. Uh, it's a false safety that crowds offer us. Um, it is the conditioning of the modern man that thinks... We are safer in crowds. Um, yeah, there are a lot of conveniences to living in a city in a crowd, but I don't think it is absolutely essential to our survival. Maybe in the past it was more essential uh, because you may have been surrounded by a pack, a pride of lions, and you had to be a crowd to push them away. Um, we may not need that anymore. Maybe easier nowadays to be in solitude. Do the ocean smell and sound and look differently? If I were to define, describe the three oceans I was on, on the Pacific Ocean, I would use the word capricious. Um, Indian Ocean, I would use the word aggressive. And Atlantic Ocean, I would use honest. Uh, Predictable. <laughs> uh, so, 
those those were the characteristics of the three oceans that I crossed. I think um, each had their own unique behavior uh, because of their the forces, the weather systems that influenced them, and because of the duration of time I was on them, it became more difficult on the Pacific to make progress. Things changed on a week-to-week basis. Uh, Atlantic Ocean, I could plan it, execute it, no issues. Indian Ocean, I had to earn every day. I was just beat up on that one. And then you came to Africa, and you were jumping on your bike and joining your father, who were 79 years at the time, and you climbed Kilimanjaro. As far as I understand, your father introduced mountaineering to you as a kid in Turkey. How was it like to climb Kilimanjaro with your father? Yeah, when I was 11, he took me up my first mountain in Turkey, and he is the one who introduced me to sports. He is I, um, a significant part of who I have become as a physical person. Um, for him to come to Kilimanjaro to climb it with me was a joy and a reward. Um, as old as he was, that became the last significant climb that he will probably have done. He is now uh, 87. It's highly unlikely that he's going to do anything as big anymore. Uh, so in that way, the person who took me up my first mountain, I was able to accompany him on his last major climb. That was meaningful to me. When you were growing your last bit, and this sounds as I am diminishing the enormity of it, but you were crossing an Atlantic Ocean this time for the second time because you, the first time you were doing a just a trial and getting acquainted with rowing. But there's a quote when you are writing articles for children and adolescents, uh, the product of a sport program is not medals, but it is motivated individual capable of taking action to accomplish goals of their own choosing, end quote. Do you think there is too much focus on winning instead of teaching how to be better at managing failures in today's society? Yes, uh, we definitely are focused on, on, focused on the end results and we idolize those who have, who gain the medals and who place the first and who are the winners and everybody else is projected as the message given to everybody else is they're all losers because they don't have the medals and they don't place first. But we all know that in any endeavor that engages more, more than one person, there's, there can only be one first placer. So as a society, we can choose to idolize those who become the first or the best or get the gold medal, become the richest or any such thing. Um, but if we focus on how they got there and we can try to emulate their unique skills and draw lessons from how they managed 
critical decisions and how they navigated the difficulties of life. <clears throat> and if we can teach that to our children, we could find that we can have a whole orchestra of best uh, piano players. We could have a whole team of best Olympic runners. We could have, you know, uh, instead of having just one person become the star, we could have a uh, whole cadre of university professors who are Nobel laureates and it could all be in Sweden, it could all be in Turkey, it could all be in United States. It's, uh, it's, 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 as a, it's what we decide to do as a society with the knowledge that we gain. And can we take what these people do and establish best practices and try to emulate their better methods so that everyone else has an opportunity to perform at their level? If we are to improve as, a, as humanity, we need to use them rather than idolize them. You say that death is part of life, and if we accept death as such, then it's not as threatening anymore, and it gains new meaning. Uh, how is your relationship with death today? Yes. Uh, we do have to accept death uh, uh, as part of life, yes. Uh, I do not fear death at this stage in my life. Uh, I feel the pressure of death around the corner, if you will. I am 58 years old now. I may have another 10 years. I may have another 30 years. We don't know. And that uncertainty motivates me to get things done today because tomorrow could be too late. It motivates me to document things that I have done. I need to write about it. I need to speak about it. I need to pass on this experience to others, especially children. And in that way, I find that a motivator. It's a whip that gets me motion in my older age. I, I need to use that as a positive influence, not as something that would make me give up in anticipation. I feel the same. i never seen really death as a threat. I've seen that as the cure that kicks me out of the bed in the morning and ignite the spark so I can embark on pursuing the goals and the visions that I have and, uh, and trying to honor uh, myself, this fragile body and this scarce time that I have on the planet to do something meaningful and, and spread that meaning and encouragement and inspiration to others. So I, I'm totally on in the same page here. Uh, death is not a threat. It's actually an opportunity to realize that if you don't get on with it, it's never going to happen. Tomorrow is never arriving. You only have today. After five years, 11 days, 12 hours, 22 minutes, you'd completed a true human-powered solar circumnavigation of the globe. If you could phrase that in some sentences, how had this journey then changed you as a person? 
the journey, I think, reaffirmed my confidence that I could get things done. I could, I needed not hesitate about um, my own capabilities, that if I set my mind to it, I could chip away at those goals and make progress. I was more confident and standing taller in knowledge that, yes, I am able and I am going to keep this experience and growth to myself, that I am a better person now than I was five years prior. Uh, those are self-affirming Uh, good thoughts that actually makes one more confident so you stand taller and you walk with a better stride and you shake hands firmer uh, those are all good things internally um, but if we are to uh, verbalize how I changed it was more, um, you know, I am self-reliant. I can get this done. Uh, there was a lot of uh, that defiance that got me through uh, the journey that lingered for a good long while. So the hopeful me, the idealist, the altruistic me saying, if I establish this nonprofit, to educate and inspire children. And if I serve society, then I will find the support that I need. Then I can tell media about this. They will write about it. Everybody will know about it. Then the donations will come and we'll do educational projects. So the nonprofit will be successful. All those thoughts that I, all those additional burdens that I had laid on my journey actually became uh, less and less likely in time. And so the optimistic me decided to emphasize that less and less and focus more and more on my own progress and on my own um, delivery of promise. So uh, did I become more selfish? Not necessarily, but I decided to not be as vulnerable anymore. I did not, I learned not to rely on society to get things done, but I needed it to um, deliver on the promise of the nonprofit, which was a contradiction in itself. And that really created a huge uh, sense of defeat. I ended up in uh, Depression. I was not adjusting back to society. I was disillusioned. I was, whenever I stood in front of children, I no longer could say with conviction, do your best, be the best in the world, and you will be rewarded. I couldn't say that with conviction. Um, I felt like saying, keep your day job, forget dreams, do what pays best. <laughs> 
that was the reality. And uh, if you have money of your own, look what I did with my own money. Uh, if you had money in the bank and retirement funds, you could, you too can cash it out and go do what I did. It's not a big deal. That's what I really wanted to say in truth. But uh, of course, I needed to play the game and I felt like an imposter. I felt like a liar in front of them. And that actually became a self-defeating thing and it undermined my conviction about the goal of educating and inspiring children. So I had to take time off from that. So the disappointment and disillusionment was part of it. And there was a, you know, a year and a half of a severe depression afterwards. And I had to snap out of it, set myself new goals and find new hobbies, started sailing, became a sailing instructor eventually, uh, made quick advances in that, started racing in sailing. And I have dreams still, I have projects still. I'm going to start building a new rowboat uh, this summer, uh, later in summer. Uh, I would like to do more. Uh, so if when I have big goals, I don't, I can overcome those negative thoughts and dark clouds over me tend to disperse then because the journey becomes, the, the goal, the new goal becomes my compass, becomes my rudder. Again, as I said, it channels my resources toward that and I do, I perform better then. I become a better person. I can relate to that. I felt this immensity of emptiness as a result of uh, what's next. Mm -hmm. After I finished, achieved my goals, I did the seven summits in 191 days and many other projects. And uh, some say that I should be uh, feeling this content. I should feel, uh, praise myself and be very satisfied with myself. But ironically, I felt the opposite. It's very hard to describe. This anticipation around me from people who don't know me, who picture Frederick as this successful climber and he should be happy and content with life and had to live up to this image. It was very hard to do. Uh, can you relate to these feelings? Absolutely. I empathize. I I, feel, I felt after the journey that I never got to celebrate and I could blame myself for that. I could blame society for that. I could say, well, uh, it didn't get acknowledged, therefore, that's one way to look at it. Uh, the other side of it is also what now? Because all of a sudden I didn't have that big goal in my life and I was not pursuing this big, larger than myself thing that had become my compass this whole time. And I felt rudderless, right? I started drifting. I lost control of my life. I didn't have anything to replace that big thing. And uh, that was a big transition. And I had to replace it. I, need, I had to re-engage and until then I couldn't. So I totally uh, can relate to your senses of um, 
despair and depression. You have this documentary, Castaway with Purpose. Well, I'd like to know how is this documentary coming along and because that would be one of my favorite to watch. When can we expect to see it? And secondly, why the title Castaway with Purpose? Uh, Castaway with Purpose was suggested to us by one of our directors, a member of our board of directors, Graham Welsh, and um, casting away the lines on tie from the dock and launch across an ocean cannot be done without purpose. Uh, there needs to be a goal in mind. And uh, I think what he had in mind was to convey that this documentary would explain the why and what had happened and why I had done it. So hence the title. The uh, documentary started with a Kickstarter campaign. We raised, uh, we were seeking 50,000. We raised 75-ish, uh, something like that. I don't remember the exact number now. Uh, we had, we started out with uh, a director who worked on the initial phases of it, and then a friend of mine took over as the director. He has a day job at HBO working 16-hour days, and he puts time into this on the remaining time. Uh, when we can't pay people's time so that they could dedicate the full day to it, um, it becomes a part-time side job. He has been able to use, use the help of uh, interns who have helped sift through raw footage. And there is a great deal of progress, uh, but we are not anywhere near a finished product yet. So um, he's still sorting through it. Uh, we will eventually get done if he keeps whittling away at it. The best way to get this done quickly would be to actually have a significant amount of money dropped in our lap so that we can pay him and a staff to dedicate their next three months to this and pay their salaries and all expenses so that they can focus on it. Otherwise, they're going to have to keep their day job. So that's the difficulty we're facing right now. Not that we don't have a story. It's that we are short on resources and we're working with borrowed time. So I'm not sure what your upcoming expeditions are, but is that something you can reveal or are there new record-breaking expeditions in the pipeline? Uh, what can we expect? Sure, of course. Let me just say that I have uh, long had the Six Summit project in my mind ever since Doran's funeral. I have so far reached the summit of Mount McKinley in 2003 and Kosciuszko in 2010 and Kilimanjaro in 2011. I bypassed Everest, Elbrus, then Aconcagua um, because of the financial crisis 2008-2010, which put a lot of strain on financing any expedition so sponsorships were just not happening during that time and i had a certain navigation to finish so i bypassed those and i pressed for the finish line 
of the circumnavigation. I have Aconcagua and Elbrus and Everest remaining to go climb, and I will get those done eventually. In which order, I haven't decided yet. Uh, I have a plywood rowboat. I would like to replace that with a composite, uh, solid, bullet, bulletproof one that could take a storm and not fall apart. Survival is critical. And um, get on the oceans again. So that's the plan to um, do it, conclude and finish the Six Summit project with uh, human powered. Yeah. Yes. Amazing. Well, Godspeed. Yes. Yeah. Go and go to each one of these summits and climb them and get it done. Keeping my fingers crossed for you. And uh, sometimes I say that. Climbing these mountains is the easy part. Getting the funding, that's the uh, <laughs> struggle. <laughs> that's a bigger mountain. Yeah. 80% of the work is getting to the starting line on any ocean crossing or getting to the base camp uh, or get leads. <laughs> getting to the airport really is the biggest part in a mountain climb. Uh, once you're there, you're actually in motion and the journey has started. Erna, if you could relive one moment in your life, which moment would that be? Mm -hmm. um, any day that I untied my rowboat from the dock and started rowing, any, any one of those days, whether on the Pacific or Indian Ocean, Atlantic, that, that sense of anticipation and that um, launching into the unknown. To the wide expanse of the ocean. That's that's those. That's the day. That's the day I want to go back to each one. What kind of advice would you give those who really would it's love like to row across an endeavor, ocean? Uh, do not dismiss the ideas. Those fleeting thoughts that we get in our minds are actually hints of the future. Hints of the person in the future that you will become. So when you have these fleeting thoughts about whether you could row an ocean or climb a mountain or the circumnavigation, whatever it may be, go sail around Antarctica, whatever crazy idea you've got, well, it may just be you who's going to do that. But we are going to be the first one to dismiss it ourselves because we have a job, we have mortgage to pay, we have kids, we have a wife. We tend to believe that we are important. Each one of us has that fallacy in ourselves. It's a, it's a bit of a narcissistic thought. We are necessary for this society. My wife needs me. My children need me. I have my work. My boss needs my company. Otherwise, the company will fail. <laughs> All of those are lies that we tell ourselves to stay put. If we were to reveal what we want to do, when we start selling to people, this is what I'm going to do, I'm committed, I am taking off. They become the best supporters there would be because they believe in you. So it's time that we become, we stop becoming the victim in this case, we can't do it because they need us. That's a victim's mindset. 
Uh, we need to become leaders and say, this is what needs to get done. Here's what I want to do. And so, and rally everybody around that thought. And that's the transition that needs to happen. So I would certainly tell them to honor the dream and then also make sure that any one of those people that we think would be in the way become allies so they become part of the journey. Great advice. So any last words well, you want to share with us? Keep dreaming. Never stop dreaming. Life is short. It's been an absolute pleasure, Erdan. Powerful, insightful. Uh, thank you for having you on the podcast. Thank you sincerely for your time and contribution. If people want to find out more about you and your endeavors, where should they turn to? Uh, they can go to our website, erdenelch.com, uh, or just Google my name, E-R-D-E-N-E-R-U-C. <laughs> You'll find plenty. Thanks a lot.